Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Steadfastness. So turn your Bibles to Acts 16, 25 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've been told that no one on the battlefield knows how he will react under fire or when others around him are dying and the enemy is pressing hard. You know, some men will fall into fear and others seem to have a courage that even surprises themselves. And hearing that makes me think that we simply don't know ourselves well enough to know how we will react under extreme situations. Now to our faith. I have heard some people say it's hard to serve the Lord when everything is going well, for in those circumstances, we begin to revel in our ease and we think of God as secondary. But others say the opposite. It's when things get difficult that we're in danger of losing our faithfulness to Christ, they say. Well, there's a passage in Proverbs that speaks to this phenomenon. Proverbs 37 to 9 is a fascinating passage. It says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is, this is a prayer to live neither as a rich or a poor man, for it's in that in-between state that we do best. But the reality is that God, in his providential designs for our lives, may determine that we don't live in the middle of the extremes. And when we live on the extreme, we need an extra measure of grace. Please don't fall into the trap of thinking that Proverbs tells us that God will ensure that we won't live in the extremes. Our Savior Jesus went to the cross, and it may well be that we're called upon to walk the long valley of suffering with him. And it's in these extreme zones that we'll learn whether we deny him or whether we'll revel in his presence. And for those of us who watch, this is fascinating. Many a rich man has forgotten the Lord and many a suffering man has done so as well. And what happens when others see the faithful men and women of Christ who are called to bear a burden, are still faithful, are still steadfast? It's at this moment that men and women take note and they're impacted. And we've been tracing the second missionary journey of Paul, and we've seen him arrive in Philippi. He's tried to be respectful of Greek culture at first, restricting his activity to Lydia and other God-fearers who were consigned to meet outside of city limits. But then he cast the demon out of a suffering young girl, a girl who was used to be an oracle or a fortune teller. She'd have been prized by the citizens of Philippi, for they would have all wanted to hear her before making future decisions. And of course, she was also a cash cow for her owners, and she would have suffered greatly. Now, how we think about Paul's action will vary depending on one's perspective. You see, from a Christian perspective, Paul is doing the work of Christ, setting a young woman bound by a demon free from her misery. But from the perspective of her uncaring owners, this was the end of their lucrative business. And from the perspective of the culture of Philippi, This was an attack on their religion and their culture. This was an attack on what it meant to be Philippian, what it meant to be Roman. And of course, as we've seen, the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman paganism, well, they were cruel indeed. And if you were a demon-possessed girl, you felt it. At any rate, Paul's rights are violated. 
He's brought before the magistrates of the city. He's presented no opportunity to offer a defense. He and Silas are badly beaten. They're placed into prison. Their feet are put in stocks. It's a very painful situation. And now to be clear, this is not the first suffering that Paul's encountered. You know, we already made mention of the fact that he had been stoned and left for dead in the city of Lystra. Now he's beaten with rods, a situation that in some cases led to the death of victims. Now they're in prison with no sense of what's going to happen next. And I'm reading here Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Well, there should be no surprise that they're awake in the middle of the night. Their wounds would have been so severe, and sleep would not have been possible given the painful nature of the stocks their feet were imprisoned in. And so we find them singing hymns to God. Now, we might wonder what they're giving thanks for, or what is this that gives rise to worship under, you know, these circumstances. But that, of course, is dependent on one's perspective. I mean, what is it that impressed Paul and Silas? Would they have been shocked that the paganism of Philippi was intolerant and cruel? Hardly. They weren't shocked by that. Remember, the girl they delivered was a slave girl. Nobody cared about her. Remember, this was a culture that knew constant war and conflict that enslaved many people, a culture that made sport of human misery. And so the two men might have said what happened was expected. But what was unexpected was to see a vision of a man from Macedonia beckoning them to come to Greece so that many would hear of the forgiving work of Christ. What was unexpected was to see Lydia and her household all confess faith in Christ and to be baptized. What was unexpected was to find this woman had a place for them to stay. And what was unexpected, I think, would have been that this woman, Lydia, had so many business contacts, even contacts in the houses of nobility, without a clear plan of how to get the church started in Greece and in Europe, God had opened more doors than they could ever have imagined. And that's what I mean. When I talk about steadfastness, faithfulness under trial, it's the ability to see what God is doing. It's the ability to, from the heart, give thanks to God. And as the two men sing well into the night, everyone in the prison is listening. Who's ever heard of singing prisoners before? Acts 16, 25 to 28. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Now we might think that this earthquake is some form of a miracle, but I actually don't think so. The area around Philippi experiences constant earthquakes and tremors. But of course, God's meticulously sovereign. He providentially rules over everything, including the timing and the severity of every earthquake that was ever experienced on this earth. And it turns out this very earthquake happened on this particular night, and it was a big one. It was violent. It was so great that it broke the doors of the prison. It was so violent, it tore the stocks from the walls. Damage was everywhere, and the fastened prisoners, they found themselves free. Well, was anyone injured? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. But when the doors of the prison now lie in ruins and the jailer now wakes because of the earthquake and he finds his prison in ruins, large gaping holes are everywhere. And for this man, there is but one response. And that's because Roman law is very strict on this matter. Any jailer, or for that matter, 
any military man who's securing prisoners and allows those prisoners to escape, that man will be sentenced to death instantly. There is no way of possibly getting out of that. And so the jailer takes his sword. He accepts his fate. He's about to fall on his sword. This will protect him from the humiliation of a trial. He just assumes that whatever prisoner can get out, they're long gone by now. But here again, we see the marks of faithful people, men and women of God, who believe that Jesus has called him or her to love his or her neighbor as himself, and that is Paul and Silas. Not only had they exercised compassion on a demon-possessed girl, now was a new day. It was time to show compassion on a jailer in the city of Philippi. How easy it would have been to simply be quiet, let the man take his life. Then when that was done, get out of jail. Paul could have reasoned, I didn't kill him. God in his sovereignty took care of all of that. I'm free, praise God. You know, the Greek text seems to indicate there was a moment of hesitation that comes to an end when Paul shouts. Perhaps he, in the darkness, sees the jailer by an opening, perhaps against the light of the moon, and he shouts out to him, don't you do it. And what happens when he cares about others more than he cares about himself? Well, that's what we see next. We find that in Acts 16, 29 to 30. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, at this point, we might ask how it's possible for the jailer to ask such a question. You know, and some have suggested the jailer couldn't have meant this in a spiritual sense because how does he know anything about the salvation that Christ offers? So people who say that suggest that he must have meant, how can I be saved from death, from the prisoners escaping, and so on. But I think that interpretation is impossible. See, in that sense, his life is already saved. I think there's no other way of understanding his question than in the spiritual sense. What must I do to be saved from my sins? What must I do to be saved from the judgment that will come upon the world? How can I be reconciled with God? I'm sure that's what he meant. But where did he get that understanding? (laughs) That's where the story is truly interesting, and it tells us a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today, and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. seems quite likely that the jailer would have been there during the trial of Paul and Silas. There he would have heard the charges being brought against him. Perhaps he's also aware of that slave girl that's still in her demonic state as an oracle of the city. 
you know, was saying something about Paul. These men, she said, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Perhaps the jailer heard that and immediately impacted him. Indeed, in the conversion of Lydia, I think it's so instructive, don't you think? Luke has told us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Indeed, is it not just as possible that the Lord was also opening the heart of this man, the jailer? Now, there is in my mind one more thing. It's the impact of the singing of Paul and Silas. I mean, who's ever heard of men who are faithful and steadfast to their God, even after being denied their basic rights in court, then being illegally beaten and tormented in their prison cell? And then let's get back to this matter of what these men were singing. Luke says they were singing hymns. Now, when we read of hymns, please don't make the mistake of thinking singing hymns means what we mean of it today. You know, the invention of the modern hymn, you know, with hymn books and so forth. Well, that didn't exist in Paul's time. But we do know, both from Ephesians 5.19 and from Colossians 3.16, that the church was instructed to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, those were three categories of singing. Psalms is simply singing from the book of Psalms. Spiritual songs are expressions of joy and love for Christ. But hymns, what are they? Well, there are a number of times in the writings of Paul where it seems he is quoting from a hymn. I mean, those hymns are expressions of doctrine. They're the singing of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. For instance, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, I think it's a hymn. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, it would seem that this is the kind of thing that early Christians sang. And what then, if Paul and Silas were singing that night, among other things, were they not singing songs of the doctrine of salvation? That's likely. They're not just giving thanks to God. They're remembering that all the prisoners in that jail, along with the jailer, should listen to the words of their song. And all the while, the Lord was opening the jailer's heart to the point where he fell asleep and then suddenly awoke by an earthquake. And then on top of that, the men that sang of the Lord's salvation were also concerned for his life, that he be saved from death. And all that, the Holy Spirit had now pushed him to the point of wanting forgiveness and reconciliation with God. What must I do to be saved, he asked. See, this is about steadfastness. This is about being unmoved and faithful in everything, even in our sufferings. For if we're faithful, we never know how God's going to use that. If we're unfaithful, what then? See, my prayer is that when we read this account, when we see the fruit of steadfastness, which means not being moved when we face trials and continue to trust in God, what then? So let's continue to read Acts 16, 31 to 34. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, I love the fact that Paul and Silas are not unclear about the gospel. Do you notice that? If there's anything these two men know, it's the answer to this question, what must I do to be saved? In a world where some religious teachers get convoluted in their answers to that question, these apostles were very clear. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells the Corinthians that when he preached to them, he preached that which was of first importance. First importance, he said. 
Jesus died for our sins, he says. That's the first important message. That's the message he returned to over and over again. And so on the night in the Philippian jail, when the jailer calls for lights and stands trembling before them, the men answer his question. You must believe in the Lord Jesus. You must put your trust in his power to save you. No, not the church's power to save or the power of your own good deeds to save or in the power of ritual or of meditation or even of hearing an oracle from a slave girl. No, no, you must trust in Christ, in his death on the cross, that he alone can rescue you from the awful judgment of God and from your sins. Trust in Jesus. I hope you hear the message. Paul wrote that to the Galatian Christians in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope is that Christ saves and it's Christ alone who does it. And with that, the jailer believes. And that very night, he brings them into his house. He washes their wounds. He lets them preach to his family. And that very night, the household of this man, the jailer, is baptized upon confession of faith. They believe in Jesus. They are saved from their sins and saved unto God. Now, before I move on, would you please notice an important matter in this text? Please notice that the baptism that occurs that night is for all who believe. Luke says that the jailer rejoiced along with his household, and he believed. The act of believing brings them to baptism. And here we see, everywhere else also in the New Testament, believing and baptism are always connected. That in itself would be a wonderful end to this account. But we still need to know how Paul and Silas can now be at the house of the jailer. And by now, the entire city would have been awake. An earthquake would have caused major damage throughout the city. And by now also, the magistrates and the police would have heard that great damage happened to the prison, and yet none of the prisoners had escaped, no doubt. They would have heard that Paul and Silas had played a major role in that. So let's continue to read Acts 16:35 to 40. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have said to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We're not told why the magistrates decided to release Paul and Silas in the first place. Why one short night in the prison? Had they already met to review the case? It doesn't seem likely that their actions in prison and the saving of the jailer's life played into it all because while it is true that they had saved the jailer's life, I can't imagine that this would have been communicated as a reason for getting them off. The jailer himself simply got the orders that they were to be released. See, it's possible, I think, that Lydia and her connections among leading citizens of the city and beyond used some of her influence. But again, Luke doesn't tell us that either. But we do know that Paul and Silas aren't satisfied with any of this. They're uncondemned men, and they're Roman citizens. They're entitled to their rights, and they're not quick to let this moment pass. Why do they demand their rights, and is that a model that Christians should follow today? See, I think that Paul is concerned for the public reputation of the gospel. He doesn't want it said that it is the gospel that caused problems in Philippi. That's patently untrue. What is true is that greed and lies and mob justice was allowed to have its day in that city. 
things that were inspired by prejudice and greed and had nothing to do with justice. And Paul wants the record set straight. Neither he nor Christians nor the message of Jesus is anti-law. That's not what had occurred. And so Paul and Silas make use of their legal rights. There is behind the statement they make an implication that they have an opportunity to seek redress in higher courts. And then suddenly the magistrates realize that it's not Paul and Silas who can be charged with sedition and doing things contrary to Roman law. Indeed, they themselves have acted in contradiction to the laws of Rome. And so in desperation, the magistrates come and offer an apology. And I'm assuming the apology was in some fashion formal and public. And with that accomplished and the rights of the infant church protected, Paul and Silas now go back to Lydia's home. And then after that's done, they depart for another city. It is possible that Luke is left behind because as he chronicles the next adventure for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, he no longer uses the word we. He's no longer along. But what is of crucial importance is the way in which these Christian men, being put in a position of great trial, actually conducted themselves. They acted as Christians. They acted in a manner that was befitting of a follower of Jesus. They remained steadfast under trial. May their example inspire us. May what was said of them also be said of us today. Thanks for your message, John. John. What perspective should we have about using the laws of the land to protect our Christian freedoms? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that any of us believe, and we shouldn't believe, that we are using the law to further the gospel. I don't know. The church furthers the gospel. Um, The power of preaching furthers the gospel. And in fact, the Holy Spirit gives us everything that we need. So uh, let's not look to that. But we ought to encourage lawmakers to pass laws that protect our liberties as believers. That is, we are asking for a level playing field where we are not being persecuted for our faith. And furthermore, as is more commonly the case than ever, uh, we find out that there are a number of ways in which our liberties are being uh, taken away from us. I think it's completely correct for Christians to take these matters to court and to defend the practice of our faith. Let's continue to do so. It's godly. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. Happy New Year. And a special thanks to all who tuned in and supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in 2022. With a new year upon us, many of you may be thinking about changes you'd like to make in 2023. Well, here's one to consider. Let's all commit to spending more time with God in His Word. And I've got good news. Back to the Bible Canada has a variety of resources to help you do just that, including Quiet Spaces Volume 2, a 30-day devotional by Dr. John Neufeld, or 31 Days of Hope and Humor, a family devotional from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. And to encourage you in your Bible reading, check out our one-year Bible reading plan. 
to explore all these resources or to make a donation to this ministry, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.